Please turn with me to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, or the Older Testament, as folks are sometimes uh, happy to refer to it. I like that. I think that's great, the older of the two Testaments. The new one is pretty old, too, if you think about it. And I want to read at, at chapter 3 of Malachi, and beginning at verse 6, and I actually want to read through verse 13, uh, verse 14. So hear the word of God. It is from the prophet Malachi. It is spoken to the people of God, and it is God's word for us. We are his people, and this is for us. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed from the days of your fathers, You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put... Me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Hard word, incredible promise. Let's pray. Lord, please do be with us as we uh, seek to think your thoughts after you this this book is your word, and these words are your words. And, and while given to a particular people at a particular place in the midst of particular circumstances, there, there, is, there is something here for us. There are things here for us. And so, uh, Father, sweetly, by your Spirit, come and take from your word those things that we need to hear uh, for the sake of your praise and glory, and Lord, for our good. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We, um, we are in the third week in a series on stewardship here at Christ the King. And um, we're doing this for several reasons. And I, again, I feel like I, I need to say something um, because there are, actually are some faces here, um, faces I've not seen before. And and the last thing in the world that I want is for people who are here for the first thing, first time to think, that, you know, to draw this mistaken conclusion that, 
that this is like every other church I've ever been in, and it's like all of those guys I watch on the television, all they want is my money. Okay, I, I will say this again. This is the first time in over five years as pastor of this church that I've done a series like this. Um, this is a first-time thing. Somebody told me last week that I said it was only going to be three weeks. Well, apparently I lied about that, but I am not lying about the fact that this is the first series like that, this that I've done uh, in the course of five and a half years. And we're, we're on this subject of tithing. I, I actually said to somebody this week who was talking about coming to the church for the first time, I said, please don't come because I'm going to talk about tithing this week. Wait a couple of weeks. You know, let me get on the other side of this. But that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at this this matter of tithing and what we've done, what I've tried to do through these first two weeks is is establish some principles. And, and actually, that's what I'm trying to do in this whole series is establish some principles upon which to think about financial stewardship, upon which to think about our lives, upon which to think about uh, the financial resources that we have and how how we're to use those financial resources. Um, principles here, principles that govern our lives. It's you know it's much easier to think in terms of rules or laws. Just tell me what to do. Well, you know, let me give you an illustration of how difficult that can be. If you look at Old Testament law, the Levitical law, Israel is encouraged to be compassionate and liberal in a number of ways. They're encouraged to welcome strangers and aliens in the midst of the land, remembering that they too were aliens and strangers. See, their redemption is always in the background as they consider and think about their own actions. And one of the things that they're encouraged to do, or actually not do, it's an agrarian, agricultural society that we're dealing with in the Old Testament. One of the things that they're to do, slash not to do, they are not to glean into the corners of their fields. And they're to leave the corners of their fields for the alien, the stranger, the poor. Well, what's the obvious question? How far into the corner do I go? How far into the corner do I go? How much do I leave? How much do I give? And I will tell you, the principle is this. The principle is this. And it's tough, folks. It's a challenging principle. But the principle is this. Our liberality, with respect to those in need, with respect to the work of the gospel, our liberality is a function of the extent to which we apprehend and know the liberality that God has shown us. Does that make sense? The extent to which I understand that God has been liberal with me, the extent to which I understand that God has been lavish with me, begins to form and shape how liberal and lavish I am with respect to other people and with respect to the ministry of the gospel, and in response to God. Those really are the first two principles that we've laid down. Giving, letting go of what God has first given to me. Giving is in the first place a response to God's goodness, as I have experienced that goodness. 
That's Genesis 4. That's the story of Abel. Abel brought the first fruits of what God had given to him, the first fruits of his flocks. The best, the fattest, the first. And I really do believe, the more I reflect on that text, the more I study it, think about it, contemplate it, I really do believe that Abel living on this side of the fall looked at God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's providence in his life, even after the fall, even after the curse, even after the words of judgment are spoken, and he was stunned and staggered and amazed by it. And in response to it, he brought the first and the best of what God had given to him. And then the second principle that we laid down last week is that giving is gratitude for God's grace. It's gratitude for God's goodness. It's a response to his goodness. And more specifically, in a more focused way, giving is gratitude for God's grace. And that's what you see in Exodus 36. Why was Israel so lavish in their giving for the construction of the tabernacle? Why were they so relentless? Why did Moses have to come to them and say, Stop giving gifts. Don't bring any more. Because they had experienced such undeserved and lavish grace. And they were mimicking God in his giving. They were mimicking God, parroting God in his giving. They did not get what they did deserve. And they did get what they did not deserve. And their response to this notion that this God of justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion would actually take up residence in the midst of the people living in a tent in the way they lived in tents, identifying with them, being pleased to travel with them, accompanying them on their way to the promised land. That was an amazing grace to these folks. And their response was to give in a lavish manner. So those are the foundational principles. Those are the principles upon which everything else is established. And it really does challenge our hearts, folks. Giving is a response to God's goodness, and giving is a response to God's grace, and my giving will be. Look, folks, I hope you understand. I'm talking to me before I'm talking to you. My giving will, to some extent, be an expression of the extent to which I have apprehended God's goodness and God's grace as they have been lavished upon me. Now, here in Malachi, we come to this matter of the tithe, the 10%. Israel is admonished to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. But here's what I want us to see. See, it'd be so easy just to kind of fixate on the number, 10%. Look, I can just tell you, I've been doing this for 35 years, and I get questions all the time. Gross or net? (laughs) Before benefits, after... I mean, you see what I mean? See, it's like, give me a law, give me a rule, and what am I going to have? A million questions about the law. Okay? Here's what I want us to see. Even when it comes to this prescription, 
This business of the tithe or the 10%, it is buried in. It is immersed in. It is surrounded by, enfolded by a reminder of God's grace. I'm not kidding. I'm not trifling with the text. Even as we talk about the tithe, we find that discussion of the tithe buried in yet another illustration of God's great grace. Let me suggest to you there are three things here. Something to remember, a way to respond, and an expected result. Okay, It's been a while since we've done the three-point thing. So, Three things. Something to remember a way to respond, and an expected result. Something to remember. What's the thing to remember? It's verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What's the thing to remember? The thing to remember is that God does not change. Now, how does that find particular expression and application in this setting? We we know something about God. I trust. I trust we know that if God exists at all, he doesn't change. He is what we, we call immutable. He is not subject to mutations, right? When something mutates, it changes. Its form changes. Its essence changes. Its complexities change. They get more complex or less complex or whatever. God is not subject to mutation. He does not change. But here's what's going on when God says that. Here's what you need to know about Israel in the midst of the 5th century B.C., about 450. What you need to know is that Israel is a mess. That's what you need to know. You need to know that that Israel at the time of the work and ministry of Malachi was a whole lot like the church at Corinth. Remember, I I know you laugh about this too, I, I have through the years. When I was first a Christian, people would say, you know, we want to be like the New Testament church. Oh, really? Have you read the Corinthian correspondence closely at all? Not even closely, just in a cursory way. Divisions, adulteries, factions, party spirit. You know, come on. Well, that's the kind of thing that you had going on in Malachi's day. The the, the people of God in Malachi's day were very, very unhealthy. They had lost their moorings. Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you, if you want to read a little more about the times, read Ezra and Nehemiah. And you'll see in Ezra and Nehemiah the kinds of things that are addressed here in Malachi's prophecy. The poor were oppressed. The priests were shirking their duties. Marriage was collapsing under the influence of a pagan culture, there was adultery, there were mixed marriages. The entire moral and spiritual landscape was characterized by worldliness and idolatry and a lack of vitality. And God addresses all of these things in the first chapters of Malachi. And he begins with the priests. Chapters 1 and 2. It starts there. You can't... This is scary... This is very, very scary. You can't have a healthy church if you don't have a healthy priesthood. You can't have a healthy church 
if you don't have a healthy priesthood. Look in Malachi 2, verses 4 through 8. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared my name. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the priests. He's speaking to those who were charged with responsibility for preserving and proclaiming the reality. Can I put it this way? The reality of the gospel of God in the midst of the people of God. And the priests had betrayed their calling and what Amos had prophesied had become true. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a famine of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You can't have a healthy church if you don't have a healthy priesthood. And you will not have a healthy priesthood if there is not the sober, serious however imperfect the sober and serious attempt to deal faithfully with the words which the God of heaven and earth has entrusted to the priests that by that instruction the people of God might be fed and shaped and formed. That's where the problem started in the days of Malachi. What resulted then as a result of the failure of the priests was widespread faithlessness, spiritual idolatry. You see it in Malachi 2, verses 10 to 12. Marriage is decimated. Malachi 2, 13 to 16. And moral relativism has crept in so that evil is called good and good is called evil. And the conviction, the belief is that God doesn't care. That's Malachi 2.17. And the result of all of this, frankly, folks, is a pervasive cynicism, which is why I wanted us to read verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's pointless to serve God. These are all the things that were characteristic of the people at the time of the ministry of Malachi. And then in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, these very famous text that William Jennings incorporated into George Frederick Handel's Messiah concerning the Levitical priesthood. This is this announcement that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And when he comes, he will come in judgment. And when he comes in judgment, he will come with refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And he will, and this is a beautiful text 
It's a beautiful text. He will purify the sons of Levi. He will cleanse them. He will purify them for himself so that they might offer to him an offering in righteousness. That's going to happen. It's going to come. But then you get this stunning verse. Verse 6 of chapter 3. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Do you see that? Here is this this warning, this threat in the first part of the third chapter that God is going to come suddenly to His temple and He's going to cleanse and purge. But then He says in in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And because I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. How, How is that? So impactful. How is that reflective of God's grace? Well, in this way. When God says, I do not change. He does not change in His person. And He does not change in His purpose. He doesn't change in His person and He doesn't change in His purpose. He will not destroy Israel. He will not destroy the children of Jacob because He has a purpose for the children of Jacob. And that purpose, the purpose that He has for the children of Jacob, even the people of Malachi's day, who are so plagued by unbelief and relativism and all of the rest, the purpose that He has For his people of Malachi's day is rooted in his promise to Abraham. Rooted in his promise made to all the patriarchs. And that promise, simply put, is that through the seed of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through these multiple descendants of Abraham, through his seed, all the nations would be blessed. Why did God preserve the people of Israel across the centuries, leading up to the time of their exile to Babylon? Why did he do that? Because he'd made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. A promise made to Abram and Isaac and Jacob, which was rooted in the first promise that he made in Genesis 3.15, that from the seed of the woman would come a conqueror who would vanquish evil, who would crush the head of the serpent. You've heard this story. It is the true story. It is the big story. That has been God's resolution, his purpose from the very first moments after the fall. And that promise and that purpose gets rearticulated in the life of Abraham. In your descendants, in your seed, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that is why God preserved this people across the centuries. That is why God sent them into exile. That is why God brought them back from exile and replanted them in the land. That is why God preserved them in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is why the temple was rebuilt. That is why the city walls were reconstructed. All of that happened because a sovereign God who has a purpose, not just for a particular group of people, but for the whole world, for all of the nations, will not fail in his purpose. He will not fail. And that is why they are not destroyed. Do they deserve to be destroyed? See, again, 
What is grace? Grace is not getting what I do deserve. And grace is getting what I don't deserve. Why does God preserve these people? Because he has a purpose. And Paul helps us understand even more clearly what that promise first made to Eve was, rearticulated in the life of Abraham, passed down from one generation to the next, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to all of the patriarchs, the promise to send a redeemer. Paul helps us understand this more clearly. Galatians 3.16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, to your offspring, Singular, who is the Christ? And where is the Christ going to come from? Read Revelation 12, the first six verses. It'll tell you. Where is the Christ going to come from? It's going to come from the woman, right? It's going to come from Israel. The son will be born out of the bosom of out of the womb, out of the belly, out of the life of Israel. One seed, and that one seed will crush the head of the serpent and eradicate evil and rule and reign forever in goodness and righteousness and justice. Folks, why does Israel exist? Why does Israel exist? So that God might bring forth a a Redeemer, a deliverer who will be a blessing not simply to one nation, but to the nations. You're here. You're here because of the promise made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and across all of those centuries and because God's faithfulness to his promise did not and will not fail. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not concerned. What are we supposed to remember? We're supposed to remember that God's faithful. We're supposed to remember that God is good. That is what God wanted Israel to remember in Malachi's day. That is what they had forgotten. The reason they had forgotten it is because the priests had failed in their responsibility to tell the story. And so they became cynical and self-absorbed. We can't forget the story, folks. We can't forget the whole reason for the existence of the nation Israel, the whole reason for the unfolding of history from the time of Adam and Eve down to the appearing of Jesus Christ. The whole reason for all of that is that Christ might appear as the Savior of the world. That's what we're supposed to remember. And so what is the response? Here's the response. Bring in the tithe. Bring in the tithe. Bring in the full tithe. Bring in the full measure of the tithe. The response? How is that the response? Here is what it is. The tithe was set apart. You can read this in Leviticus. You can read it it in Numbers. The tithe was set apart. It was given for the Levites, for the one tribe in Israel responsible for maintaining the religious life of the nation. 
They were the ones who were supposed to keep the hope alive, keep the story alive. And so what God is calling upon the people to do in this passage, he's reminding them that he's good. He's reminding them that he has a purpose. He's reminding them that the purpose cannot fail. And basically what he's doing is inviting them to participate with him in preserving and proclaiming the story. That's what he's calling upon them to do. Folks, that's what we're trying to do here. Repeatedly, every week, tell the same story in all of its beauty, in all of its intricacies, in all of its levels of color and depth, and seeking to apply it week by week by week by week. But we don't want it just to stay here. We want it to extend out from here. We want it to go from this place to this place to this place to the uttermost parts of the earth because this is the never-ending story. This is the really true story in comparison with which all other stories are mere pale expressions. I shared this illustration at the Women's Refuge on, on Friday. Think of your favorite fairy tale. We do that occasionally at the Women's Refuge. Think of your favorite fairy tale. You know, the girls always say Snow White, Cinderella. The guys, if they're anything like me, what's the story? Robin Hood. Robin Hood and his band of merry men and women. But you see, all of those stories, wonderful fairy tales that they are, they are just pale reflections of the eternal and never-ending story. What is Cinderella about? Cinderella is about the damsel being rescued from oppression, being elevated from living among the cinders in the basement to a place of regal splendor and glory. Cinderella is about the prince rescuing and delivering her. That sounds like like the never-ending story to me. What is Robin Hood about? You can do this one. You can do it with me. Why are Robin Hood and Maid Marian and Friar Tuck and all of the rest merry because there is a rightful king, Richard the Lionheart, and when he comes back, He will remove the evil Prince John from his throne. He will toss the Sheriff of Nottingham into the slammer. And Sherwood Forest will know peace and prosperity under his rule and reign forever. And they know he's coming back. That's the never-ending story. And that is what God is seeking to remind the Israelites of. In the day of Malachi, I have a purpose and my purpose will not fail. And that is why you are not destroyed, because I'm going to fulfill my purpose. And believe it or not, I'm going to do it through you. Don't forget it. And the response, bring the tithe and let's do this together. Let's preserve and proclaim this glorious story. And then here's the last thing. What's the expected result? Verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed. The nations will call you blessed. 
Look, as the story is preserved, as the promise is preserved, as the promise and the story are proclaimed, the nations, the nations will call you blessed. You know, there's a remarkable passage in Deuteronomy 4. You ought to read this passage in which God is giving his law to his people, his law. And as he begins to give them that law, he says, you know what's going to happen if you will receive this law and if you will practice this law? You know what's going to happen? The nations around you will say, what God is so great and so compassionate as their God? The nations will see the difference. Here's the sequence of thought. In this passage in Malachi, number one, even though you are a mess, and that applies to me, friends, even though I am a mess, God's purpose will not fail. My purpose is to bless all of the nations in my promised Redeemer. So, even though you're a mess, partner with me. Partner with me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Number three, I promise you, as you do that, that I will shower you with blessing. I will be faithful to you to meet all your need, even exceeding what you need. I'm going to teach on this stuff in Tanzania when I go there this summer. I'm going to teach on this. The stewardship of the material resources that God has entrusted to us among a people who have so very little. And I'm going to read this same promise to them because it's God's word. Test me in this. Test me in this, says the Lord. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out upon you blessing until there is no more need. Now look, we could spend the next four hours making all kinds of distinctions with respect to blessing. I'm not on television. There's no credit card thing at the bottom of the TV screen. And I am not saying to you, if you sow in faith, you will reap a financial harvest. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that in this setting, where God says, I know you're a mess, but my purpose won't fail, and through you I'm going to bless the nations through my promised Redeemer, so partner with me, come and get involved in this work, bring in the full tithe. I promise you that as you do, I will shower you with blessing beyond your need, and the result will be that the nations will see, and you will be called blessed. I'll never forget I'll never forget, and I have to close with this. I'll never forget Peter Ketula standing in this pulpit nearly two years ago at our first missions conference, envisioning himself an African man meeting a white missionary and saying, thank you. Thank you to God for calling the white missionary. Thank you, missionary, for coming And who is the third group thanked? Those who enabled the gospel to go to that place in that missionary. The nations will see and will rejoice and be glad 
because they are being gathered up into and blessed by this never-ending story. Something to remember, God is faithful. A way to respond, get involved with him, and the expected result, the nations will rejoice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please help us take this truth. We are a mess. We are a mess. Each of us and all of us together. Bigger, greater, deeper, messier mess than any one of us really knows. And yet you, it is your good pleasure now as a redeemer, not only to rescue us, but to partner with us so that this story might be preserved and proclaimed. Lord Jesus, look with favor upon us. Do what is promised here. Do what you, Lord, have promised. Open the windows of heaven and pour out upon us more than we can contain to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name we pray. Amen.